Hello, this is Philip Norville Joe Carroll, author and narrator of the Pariah Podcast. This is episode number nine. In Training. Two and a half before midnight, Keel opened the door to a small windowless room. His candle shed weak light on an empty bed to the right. As quickly as he could, he slipped into the room, not wanting to disturb the boy already sleeping in the opposite bed. He set the candle on a small table, wide enough to fill the space between the two beds at their head. An extinguished candle on the far edge sat next to a tinderbox and a striker. The sleeping boy faced the wall. Covered to his neck by a blanket, Keo saw only the ghostly glow of white blonde hair, cut short and standing straight up like the down of a dandelion. Keo slipped off his boots, tunic, and hose and climbed into bed. "'You'd better not snore,' the other boy said. "'I've been told I don't,' Keo said, hoping for some short conversation, but the boy said nothing further. The next Keo knew, someone pounded on the door and shouted, "'Wake up! Five after! Report by the sixes!' He heard the same repeated once more down the passage. After seven days on a feather bed, sleeping on wooden slats covered only by a thin, straw-tick mattress left him feeling stiff. The wayshed was more comfortable than this, he grumbled, and sat on the edge of his bed, stretching his arms behind his neck. Keo heard the scratch-scratch and saw sprays of sparks from the striker as the boy from the other bed worked at lighting his candle. Once lit, he turned without a word to dressing himself. "'Good morning,' Keo said. The boy grunted. "'Do you mind if I light my candle off yours?' "'No.' I'm Keo. Okay. Keo gave up on conversation, lit his candle, and turned to dressing himself. He opened the sack given to him the night before, which held his new uniforms, the colors he would wear until his egg hatched. The scent of red dye filled the room. The other boy coughed and frowned at Keo. He smiled back, shrugged, and pulled the tunic over his head, and secured it with a purple leather belt. He pulled on gray hose and slipped into his boots. He took his candle and walked down the hallway to a lavatory the corporal who had brought him into the barracks had shown him the night before. Lanterns lit both ends of a double shelf along one wall of the lavatory. In the light cast between the lanterns, Keo noticed a purple stripe running the length of his hose on the outside of either leg. The bottom shelf, at knee level, held a row of water pitchers. The upper shelf, at chest height, held empty wash basins. He filled one, splashed water over his face and hair, scrubbed his teeth with a coarse cloth, then used the latrine and dumped his wash water down the chute. He felt sorry for the civil service trainees whose duty it was to empty the collection pits outdoors and transfer it to the midden heaps. Once training was in full swing and the barracks full, that must be an all-day affair. Keo passed the other boy in the passage as he walked back to his room. The other didn't acknowledge his presence. Once back in the room, Keo held the candle up to take a closer look around. It was sparse. Stone block walls, two beds, 
a table between the heads of the bed, and a shelf above the table. On the shelf was a smaller basin than those in the lavatory, an empty pitcher, three unused candles, and a second striker and tinderbox. He made his bed, organized his bundle, and headed out to the parade grounds. He stood alone on the dark street, where the corporal had shown him to wait, expecting to be joined by the rest of the king's servants selected for creature handling. Keo had forced his selection at the end of a long day. Two thousand servants had passed through the testing room before he had. Fifty to sixty should have shown the aptitude. A clock a few streets away chimed twice for the half hour. He could have sat in his room for a while, trying to engage the other boy in a conversation. The room was small, though, and he felt much more comfortable beneath the fading stars of pre-dawn. When the clock chimed thrice, the door to his barracks opened, and the boy from his room with two others walked out onto the street. They also wore stiff new uniforms of dyed red wool, purple belts, and matching hose. There he is, the boy from his room said. The three stopped in front of him. His roommate ran the fingers of both hands through his short, blonde hair, smoothing it back, trying to make it lie flat. Even in the pre-dawn darkness, the boy's skin appeared sallow, with blemishes across his forehead. His greasy hair slowly returned to stand at odd angles. He took one step closer to Keo than the other boys had, and asked, "'Who's your father? We can't figure it out.' It was a strange introduction, but Keo decided to go with it, looking the boy up and down, and deciding that he could take the skinny kid in a wrestling match, if it came to that, Keo said, My father is Ando Noshane. My name is Keo. The three passed sour looks to one another, and the first said, That does me no good. Who is your designate? Keo had never really thought about it. He must have one, since the entire country is divided into designations. He knew his father paid taxes, but since he knew he would be going into the creature corps and wouldn't be working any part of the ranch, he never cared to ask. I don't really know. Our ranch is pretty far off the beaten path, and the designate never comes our direction personally. Get with it, you rotting terp. Stop playing games and tell us whose third you are, another of the boys said. Keo was filled with a sudden flash of anger. He didn't know what a terp was, but if it was rotting and they were calling him one, it didn't sound good. He wasn't one for fist fighting. He'd never needed to, with his reputation at home but now he found his hands clenching with his heart racing. He was arranging his thoughts for a reply when he heard a familiar voice from behind. Hello, boys. What do we have on the agenda today? Kayleen? Keo asked, spinning around, his confusion deepening. Keo, what are you doing here? Kayleen, the angry boy said. Do you know this terp? He just wants to play games and not tell us where he's from. Listen, Keo said, shoving his index finger right up to the other boy's nose. You call me a terp one more time, and you'll be doing the rest of your talking lying on your back. Believe him, Storgent. He has muscles like a draft horse, Kayleen said. He's not a designate third, so I'm confused as you are why he's here. She turned to him, her mouth pinched into a beautiful bow. She had braided her hair and wore a uniform almost identical to those the boys wore, only fuller in the chest. Her red tunic was cut to the same length as Keo's and secured with the purple belt. She wore the same hose with purple stripe. 
Colonel Pringert called me to her office last night, after the selection test, and gave me orders to come here. Why don't you tell me what you're doing here, and that might make it clearer to me how to answer this rooster's questions. Kayleen laughed at the reference, apparently finding it accurate, and said, We, identifying herself and the other three, are the designate thirds who tested with aptitude for creature handling. Because we are designate thirds, we will be given leadership roles as we travel to and once we arrive in the training camp. That's why we wear purple belts and have the stripe on our hose. Once all the king's servants have been tested, other leaders may be chosen from the non-designates, if more are needed. The colonel must have seen something in you that made her feel you will be one of those additional leaders. She didn't tell me that last night, only that I should report here, Keo told Kayleen and eyed the other three boys suspiciously. So this is the extent of the designate thirds who will be creature handlers? No, Keo's roommate said. There are five more days of testing, at least. There will be more. Link, form a unit, someone shouted from behind their backs. They gathered into a rough line and stood at attention. Keo expected a lot of shouting from the training sergeant, but he explained to them calmly that he expected more from those identified for leadership. He shouldn't have to tell them anything more than once, or expect anything less than immediate compliance to any of his orders. He promised them he would quickly and just as casually demote them back to regular trainees if they failed him, and there was nothing their designates could do about it. They were given until five before midday to eat their breakfasts, take care of other business, sign for a practice sword, and return to the parade grounds. Later, when they gathered for sword practice, Kayleen announced to the group, Keo and my cousin, Morden Farnding, caught some murderers along the southern highway on their way to the capital. The sword Keo was allowed to keep from the capture was probably stolen from a designate, but the one Morden kept was magnificent. Maybe from a king. It looked foreign. Don't exaggerate, Kayleen. They were just swords, Keo said. She looked at him cross-eyed and said, You really don't know swords, do you? You wait. You'll carry it on the march to the camp. If every adult doesn't stop you to take a look at it, I'll get you another one. They paired off for sword work right away. Keo stood opposite his roommate, Storgant Vangled. The instructor set out the routines he wanted them to practice. Storgant smiled like a mad dog. Keo barely understood half of what their instructor said and tried to align it with what he had learned at the swordwork school the previous week. Storgant took a one-handed ready stance. Keo assumed he should do the same. The command of ready, fight, had barely been uttered when Storgant struck his wrist with the practice sword, the wooden slats clacking together with a loud crack. It took all of his control to hold his blade, his mind racing to remember parries and counter-thrusts, too late to use against the other boy. He froze, the dull point of his opponent's wooden sword at his throat. Stupid terp, Storgant sneered. I don't believe you captured any murderers with sword skills like that. Kayleen's big mouth, Keo muttered and tried to diffuse the comment with humor. It was Morden who did all the work. I was mostly trying to get out of the way. And it wasn't with swords. He was carrying a long staff. We came upon the thieves in a way hut, draining the blood from a victim's neck. I barely escaped with my life, and not from the thieves, 
but from the opposite end of the long staff. Stupid turp, Storgant repeated. Keo's pulse pounded in his neck, and he pictured himself running the practice sword through the arrogant designate third's chest and into his heart. Their instructor stopped practicing with Kayleen and came over to them. There's too much talking and not enough sword fighting. Is there a problem? he asked testily. This tur... Storgant started to say. This trainee's inept with the sword and wasting my time. Is there a first or second master I can train with? Or maybe you could lash a sword to a tree and I would get a better challenge. I've only had a few days of sword training, and that just last week, Keo said defensively. Storgant disarms me even before I raise my sword. I suppose they taught you a basic parry in that week of instruction, the instructor said, his eyebrows raised. Yes, sir. The man cut him off before he could say more. Then the two of you will continue to spar until one of you has learned to parry effectively or has a broken wrist. He turned back to Kayleen. Keo's wrist throbbed and felt as if it must be broken after several more strikes from Storgan's practice blade before he finally recognized the boy's pattern. There were really only two approaches for Storgan's attack, and he chose the inside attack much more than the outside. Knowing this, it was simple to assume where he would make his thrust and be one step ahead. Storgant yelped like a dog that had its tail stepped on when Keo slapped his blade against the boy's wrist. The designate third wasn't so fast, just more experienced, and not all that smart. It would take some work, but Keo knew he would best him eventually. The instructor laughed while Kayleen clapped delicately. Well done, Noshani, the man said. You may break for lunch. While Kayleen remained friendly and approachable, as new thirds tested out for Creature Handler, they joined Storgan and the others by ignoring Keo's presence. They barely acknowledged him, even at meals or in their barracks. Keo easily fell into the routine as they waited out the remainder of the sorting. Five more designate thirds were added during the first two days, and they practiced swordmanship, archery, horse-riding skills, and calling the marching orders. While he looked like a fool during sword practice, archery and horsemanship were both skills he had developed since an early age. On the first day of archery practice, Keo requested a heavier bow. You think you can shoot this more accurately than the training bows? The archery instructor asked with a smug smile, giving him the heaviest bow in the armory. Keo knocked an arrow, drew back on the string. He loosed four arrows, one after the other, with only a quick breath in between shots, to realign his aim. Each landed closer to the center, and the last in the black of the bullseye. That's better, Keo said. Let me try that one. Storgant said, reaching for the bow. Keo looked at the instructor, who nodded, before he handed the bow to his roommate. Once the arrow was knocked, the designate third tried to pull back on the string smoothly, but the arrow danced around as his muscles shook, and once loosed, it flew to the side of the target. He shoved the bow back at Keo without a word. On the third afternoon, they were taken to the stables for horsemanship. Second-year civic servants brought the horses to the corral, the reins of a horse in each of their hands. Kale looked over the horses as they were brought out and chose the one he would like to ride. He called to it in his mind. 
With a leap, the horse broke free of the trainee's hand and trotted over to him. He stroked its nose and scratched its ears and waited for the others to have their horses assigned. The horse given to Dorley, a heavyset boy from the north of the country, shied and jerked its head against the reins. Sergeant, Keogh said as he passed, I think that horse isn't feeling well and would probably serve better with a smaller rider, such as Kayleen or Chantel. And how would you know that, trainee Noshani? The sergeant sounded exasperated, though he waited for an answer. Keogh didn't want to tell the trainer he had just talked with the horse and found that it wasn't well. While it was happy to work outside, it felt weak. Instead, he said, I've grown up on a farm and worked closely with horses. It just has a look about it. Sometimes it's easier to give a horse what it wants than force it to what you want. When the sergeant only frowned at him, Keogh smiled and shrugged. Okay then, Dorley, give Chantilly your horse. Dorley looked cross and tightened his grip on the horse's reins. The horse pulled the reins free with a snap of its neck, turned and walked over to Chantilly. The instructor watched the horse, open-mouthed. His face turned red and he walked over to Keogh, who stood at attention. The sergeant stepped up close, their chests almost touching. He was a bit taller than the boy, but was eye to eye with him when he tipped his head down and whispered through gritted teeth, Did you have something to do with that? It's just a horse, Sergeant. Do you think it read my mind? Keogh chuckled, hoping the instructor would accept his joke and leave him alone. I know it's just a horse, trainee. If it doesn't go back to acting like just a horse, you're going to find yourself as an assistant to the shit collector. Would you like that? Uh, no, Sergeant, Keogh said. Then go back to riding your horse and stop making me look like a fool. Yes, Sergeant, Keogh said, quickly mounting his horse and trotting to where the others held a loose rank. While all the designate thirds had reasonable sword skills, they varied in their ability to ride. After a short evaluation of all the riders, the instructor divided the trainees into groups of three or four, with one strong rider per group. Keo found himself in a foursome with Kayleen, Storgant, and Dorley. "'Don't think you're going to teach me anything, farm boy,' Storgant said as they grouped up. "'I wouldn't consider it,' Keo said with a smile, though he wasn't trying to be funny. "'I've trained a few mules on the farm, but never as stubborn a jackass as you.' Storgant pulled on the reins to bring his horse closer to Keo, his face bright red with indignation." He nearly fell from the saddle when the horse stood as if carved from marble. "'You have to wonder why they are training us on horses,' Keogh said to Kayleen. "'We're all going to be creature handlers. All of the animals are ridden by their handlers, and most are flown.' "'It's because we're leaders,' Storgant said. "'Well, most of us are. Corps leaders and company leaders always ride horses. "'Maybe it's so that we'll feel more comfortable on the back of our creatures,' Kayleen said." No, riding and flying a creature is so different. Horses are smart, but not like the creatures. You direct a horse. A creature bears you, allows you to ride on it. It would never let you fall. How do you know so much about it? Storgan accused. Keogh shrugged, realizing he had spoken too authoritatively. Storgan sneered and walked his horse to one of his friends. Kayleen watched Storgan leave, and then leaned closer to Keogh and whispered, I almost think you are speaking to the horses. Is that the trick you used when I tried to flee from you the other day? Of course not, Keogh said. 
The stableman trained the horses to obey a whistle. I told you that, didn't I? She looked at him dubiously. Kayleen, Keo said, matching her stare. Let me remind you, I am not a designate third. I'm just a kid from the farmlands with the skill to be a creature handler. This is all I want and no political power whatsoever. We, Kayleen began, then said, Don't sell yourself short. A little power can be a useful thing at times. As one week stretched into two, Keo found what had been interesting and exciting became routine. Some was even drudgery. When it was his turn to march the small group around the parade field, it was engaging enough. But when it was the others, the endless left face, right face, rear march, and on, was almost too much to endure. By the time the selection period ended, those not destined to be creature handlers had been divided into two groups, the larger one for military training in the north end of the camp, the other for civic service, which would be quartered in the barracks closer to the gate. 385 of the 15-year-olds, in addition to Keogh and nine designate thirds, had been selected for creature handler training. Two more of the trainees were chosen to act as corps leaders, and the remaining 383 were divided into corps of 31 or 32 trainees in each. They would begin their march to the creature handler camp in just five days. The commander in charge of marching the entire camp, Major Durellian, assigned each of his three lieutenants four corps leaders. On their 300-mile march, they had strict orders to follow the chain of command and use their training leaders as they would the permanent staff. Lieutenant Hitchmaker called out Keogh's name and three of the designate thirds, two girls and Storgant Vangeld. They ran to form a rank in front of him, came to attention, and held their salute. Very good. Stand at ease, the lieutenant said. The major will be sending over your corps assignments within the hour. We will have the remaining two hours before the evening sixes to get your corps set up on your assigned campground. There should be enough single tents for everyone and a larger tent for yourself. Set them up in an organized and uniform manner as we will be training here for five days. In that time, you will get to know your trainees, choose four link leaders, and divide the corps into links. The evening before we march, make sure you and your corps has checked all weapons out of the weapons room and all of your gear is in camp. We won't make you carry your gear. We have two wagons for that. We have one cook wagon for the four corps. Do any of you have questions while we wait for orders? Storgant stepped forward and said, Lieutenant Hitchmaker, why do we have a non-designate third in our company? Wouldn't it be better to put those three in one company, since they don't really need the leadership experience and will only drag the rest of us in the company down? I'm not sure what you're getting at, Corps Leader Vangled. Could you clarify your question? Maybe explain how Corps Leader Noshani might drag us down? And keep in mind that neither I, nor any of the other company commanders, nor the battalion commander, Major Jurelian, are designate thirds. Unruffled, Storgant began. It's clear that some of us were born and raised to provide leadership to others. And then there are others who have fallen into leadership roles by circumstance. Without years of preparation, these others would not be capable of making the important split-second decisions required of a competent leader. 
and thus reflect poorly on the entire company and cause us to attain lower status when we are placed at the creature training encampment. It would be better that all the unexperienced Corps leaders be placed in a single company and allow those of us with the talent to compete for position and rank among ourselves, making a better showing overall and gaining the proper prestige and status. Keo smiled to himself, knowing more of the process at the training camp than the pompous designate third. I'm not involved in the training at the camp, the lieutenant said. I just get you there. But I have heard plenty of my fellow military officers talk of it. From what I understand, once your egg is hatched, it doesn't matter if you are a designate's daughter or the son of a whoring bitch. You are all equal in your creature handler status. Leaders are taken from the links and cores within the companies, but they base the selection on your empathic abilities with your creature. The two years leading up to that, you can play at being the king's high command if you want. You're a creature handler now, and his highness has plans for you, other than going back home after five years and taking over your father's designation. You're in this corps for life. A runner approached, saluted, gave the lieutenant a small stack of papers, saluted again, and ran on. Hitchmaker glanced at the papers and turned back to Vangled. One other thing. You are only guaranteed your leadership roles until you get to the creature handler training camp. Had you not shown handler potential, you would have remained in leadership until graduation, an assignment to a permanent unit. Once the battalion arrives at the creature camp, it will be up to the camp's leadership whether or not you remain at the head of a corps. Again, empathic ability is the prime quality they look for in their leaders. Lieutenant Hitchmaker handed the location and unit assignments to the four corps leaders and said, Get going. Dinner is at the sixes, and the last unit there has to clean up. Keel was pleased with his corps' performance. They all appeared excited about their prospect of being creature handlers. They strode in and set up their camp and worked hard until it was complete. He watched them work, looking for who would be his four link leaders. He wanted those willing to work, but who were also able to delegate and direct others. As the trainees finished their work, he assigned several to set up his command tent. They looked like a motley group, each with a different color tunic or hose from the person next to them. Their first task in the morning would be fitting with appropriate uniforms. First-year trainees in the Creature Handler Corps wore the same uniforms he and the other leaders were given upon their selection. Red tunics with tall straight collars and sleeves to mid-forearm, but belted around the waist with a standard black sword belt and gray tights without any side stripes. If they brought serviceable boots with them, they could wear those, otherwise heavy leather boots were provided to complete their uniform. The girls would trade in their colorful dresses or shifts for identical uniforms to the boys, though cut to match their body shape. His corps made it to the chow line just minutes after Storgens. The designate third sneered at Keo as if he'd accomplished some great feat to Keo's insult. He certainly wouldn't miss rooming with the surly boy. Keo stood to the side as his trainees stepped forward a pace at a time through the serving line. He evaluated each as they passed, mentally marking those he wanted to watch more closely. One girl stood out, in contrast to the rest, unlike anyone he had ever seen. Her hair was as orange as a ripe persimmon, and her face so covered with freckles there was little skin that wasn't spotted. How could she have gotten so disfigured? 
His sister, Jillian, had a few strategically placed freckles across her nose and cheeks as a younger child, which gave her an adorable, rustic look. Over time they faded, and as an adult there were none. But this girl was so blemished Keel felt his stomach turn. And the orange hair, he had never seen such a shade in his life. Some in his home had reddish tones mixed in with brown, and others with reddish strawberry blonde, though he himself preferred deep brown like walnut wood, planed and polished. She wore a working-class shift, bulky and brown, reaching down to mid-calf, though it was neat and clean. She wasn't rich, though she obviously took pride in her presentation, unlike some in the corps who apparently hadn't washed their faces or brushed their hair in weeks. It would be unkind to call her out in front of all her companions and question her origin. He would wait for an opportunity to speak with her more privately. What concerned him most about the girl was that she appeared to meet his standards for leadership. She worked without breaks or coaxing, helped others learn their tasks, and talked and laughed the whole time. Red lips outlined straight white teeth as she smiled, listening to others politely, and then sharing her thoughts with animation and cheerfulness. When she smiled, happiness surged through him at the sight, even though her face was the most disagreeable he had ever seen. Not only was she disfigured with innumerable freckles, dimples pierced her round cheeks with every smile. As the last of his corps took his plate, Keo stepped in line, took a pounded tin bowl for himself, and followed the others back to their camp. Keo sat in a folding chair in his command tent. It seemed absurdly large for one chair, a collapsible table and his cot. Maybe there would be conferences with his link leaders or some other reason to have people gather inside. The following morning, as the corps rose and prepared for the day, Lieutenant Hitchmaker met with the corps leaders and sent them to the armory to be issued a sword, if they didn't have one of their own, and to check out four wooden training swords. Each link leader would carry the slat saber as a symbol of their rank. Lieutenant Hitchmaker warned them, You will note that your swords are wrapped and sealed in their scabbards. Carrying the sword is a symbol of your authority. We don't want any accidents from people showing off or acting foolishly. The wrapping was applied by our master armorer, and he would recognize if it was tampered with, so don't think you can take the wrapping off and reapply it. You have until the evening sixes to choose link leaders and divide your corps into four links. Before reporting for dinner, have a ceremony, present your leaders with their practice swords, and divide them into links. After dinner, they'll have to rearrange their tents. You are dismissed. Keo hurried back to his camp. His thoughts from the previous evening weighing on him. He had to choose his link leaders and didn't feel as if he had gotten to know his candidates well enough. The glowing-haired girl stood out most in his mind, as well as the early morning light. Trainee, um, Oakley? Keo asked. Yes, core leader, she answered with an unfamiliar inflection, her wide smile crossing her round face. Come with me, please, Keo said, turned and wandered through the tents until he found the other girl he sought. Trini Beecham, Keo said to the other girl, who was busy arranging items in her tent, her backside and legs protruded from the tent opening. She backed out in a hurry and stood. Yes, core leader. She didn't look as happy as Oakley had. In fact, she frowned anxiously, glancing back and forth between Keo and the girl. Are you all right? 
Is something missing from your tent? Keo asked. Yes, I mean, no, I mean, yes, I'm okay. Nothing is missing from my tent. Keo was suddenly worried that this girl wasn't right for a link leader. She seemed too jumpy. He'd watch her anyway, though. Relax, both of you, Keo said, for Beecham's benefit. I just want to ask you a favor. This morning we'll be getting our uniforms. For obvious reasons, I won't be in with you and the other girls when you're fitted. Could the two of you take charge in case there are any of the female trainees who need extra help or direction? They both said yes, nodding their heads, and Beecham smiled. That was more like it, and more like the girls who had caught his eye. Beecham's dark brown hair bounced in long waves down to her shoulders as she nodded agreement. Her face was smooth, lightly tanned, and unblemished, her chin ending in a delicate point. Her lashes were long and her eyes dark as pitch. Oakley, not as ugly as she had appeared the day before, her orange hair and tight curls barely moved when she nodded, and her pale blue eyes seemed unnatural. She wasn't fat. Maybe Chunky was closer. No, she didn't seem to carry a lot of fat. Stocky or strong. Her body didn't have the delineations the other girls seemed to have, with tight waists, accentuated bosoms, and delicate arms and hands. They both watched him, waiting for him to speak again. Also, as there are only twelve girls and twenty boys, I suspect you'll be out of the uniformers before the boys. Make sure they all get changed into the uniforms, their gear stowed, and have them wait on the north side of my tent. You don't have to stand in formation or do anything, but be there and ready to go when I get the boys back. If we're running behind, I want to be confident that the girls will be where I can find them and ready to go. Will do, Corlita Noshani, Oakley said, with Beecham repeating right after her. Oakley, Keo said, you have an unusual way of speaking. Where are you from? The few flesh-colored spaces on her face disappeared as she blushed, though when she spoke, she was forthright and confident. I come from Marfekar. You call it the Southland. My father was a fisherman. My mum, my two brothers, and I worked on his boat. One day, a spine from a fish's fin ran through the palm of his hand. We thought we had pulled it out and cleaned it properly. But a fever set on him and he died. My father's partner claimed... He he was owed money, and as payment took my father's boat. My brothers would have been taken and forced into labor as oarsmen for other offenses the partner claimed. So we ran, my mother and us, and we came to Hender's Peak. My mother found work in a bakery and was later courted by the head baker, an older man of ample beans and great integrity. That was five years ago. Me, being the third child in this newly formed family, I was prepared to enter the king's service when I came of age. Okay, Keo said. That was more explanation than I expected, but welcome, I guess. Keo felt tongue-tied with the girl's pale eyes focused on him, her eyebrows raised on her round, peppered face. Her nose was cute, short and roundish, her lips small and plump, though it made her face look all the more rounder. Thank you both for your help. We best form up for morning inspection, Keo said, and turned away. Keo was right about the boys taking longer to outfit with uniforms, and as they left the uniformer's tent, the bell was ringing a quarter before midday. Come, boys. We're going to be late for lunch if we don't move out, Keo said and called the advance. He didn't want to be at the back of the lunch line, 
It would be time wasted when he could be otherwise organizing his corps. We're going to run. You haven't learned the fast march yet, and I don't want to look like a bunch of sheep scattered by wolves. I'll give you the command, one, two, ready, run, then we'll just take two steps for every one that you're taking now. Does that make sense? There was a general response that it did, so he gave the command and counted one, two, three, four, over and over, at the new pace until all eventually fell into place. Enthusiastically, they chanted one, two, three, four, and proceeded at quite a clip until they got back to their camp, and Keo realized with mild horror that he hadn't taught them how to stop. Looking like a herd of sheep, they came to a general halt without too much colliding or tripping over one another's feet, and he sent them off to stow their gear and get back to formation. The girl stood ready on the north side of his command tent. He waved them over to fall into formation for lunch inspection. As his corps returned to the parade ground, most of the boys still laughing and wiping sweat from the foreheads, they were first to report for the midday inspection. Storgant marched his corps up a moment later his face dark and anger burning in his eyes. Keo figured this boy would remain a stone in his boot for many long years. Thank you for listening to the Pariah Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more, stop by my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Joe and see how you can help me produce these episodes and earn some bonuses for yourself at the same time. If you could help me out by going to iTunes and leaving a review, I'd love you for the rest of my life. Any kind of feedback to an author, producer, is more sustaining than food and water. If you'd like to know what else I've written, or am writing, stop by my website at norvaljoe.com or like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Author. Philip with one L, Carol with two R's and two L's. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.